Hey guys, Glenn Rhodes here with episode four of Lost, Confused, and Hopeful. This week is all about reading. Again, but this time the bulk of this podcast is made up from interviews that I've done with my students as we read five different graphic novels together. American-born Chinese, Kindred, Mouse, Persepolis, and Ichiro. And it's been an interesting week. As students have been reading and working with these novels, I've been doing a lot of watching and reflecting. Basically, what it comes down to is, uh, well, can be summed up in what one of my students said today in class. I asked my students how they were doing, how their graphic novels were, and the first response that was given, just like right off the cuff, without any thought, is that they were having fun. And there was almost this like hush to see what would happen with that response. And I think that that kind of sums up exactly where we are in education. Can we actually be doing work if we're having fun? Can we really be reading in class if it's something that we enjoy? As Penny Kittle talks about, if we're not careful, we're going to produce the largest generation of highly literate non-readers the world has ever seen. She goes on to say in an article she wrote with Kelly Gallagher in Literacy Worldwide that if we do not alter our approach to the teaching of reading, if we don't figure out a way for students to rediscover the magic of books, we will graduate a generation of non-readers, fake readers, and underprepared for college readers. And this is something that terrifies me. I mean, I look around my classroom and I almost feel guilty. Like, am I actually preparing them? Am I doing something that is going to get them ready for 11th grade? Are are we really working if my students are having fun? It almost feels like we're cheating or we're doing something secret. Um, You know, something we're not supposed to. The fact that we're reading these graphic novels. But all it takes is a look at the work they're producing, the deeply analytical, the highly thoughtful um, work, just listening to their podcasts, listening to their discussions. And it's very clear that the engagement in these books is driving some of the most complex thoughts and conversations that we've had all year. So that's what's been going on in my classroom should I say, our classroom. And on the podcast this week, you're going to hear that reflected as students discuss these novels and their experiences with them. I'm going to talk with you guys about a couple kind of meta moments with the podcast, some oopses and ahas that I've had, uh, mainly around uh, the articles that students are going to be bringing in this week uh, coming up, and also just how we don't have enough time. It's terrifying. We've got about five weeks left in the semester. We're going to talk about uh, some of my experiences with the books, and we're also going to have a really special interview with an author that the GSA Book Club was able to do. His name is Bill Konigsberg, and he wrote a book called Openly Straight, which is one of the quintessential LGBT young adult novels that have ever been written. When dealing with social justice topics, definitions, terms, the way we think about these complex issues, the way we define them, it's important. Words matter. And when we're reading a graphic novel like Mouse about the Holocaust, about concentration camps, about the abject horror that the Jewish people suffered at the hands of the Nazis, Even though they're depicted as animals, the Jews being mice and the cats are actually the Nazis, these feelings about these topics are no less real. And the social justice issues that are presented are just as strong. But when you have that kind of energy, arguments are bound to happen. And that's one of the things I was hoping would actually come out of this unit as we discuss these topics. I wanted students to get so involved and invested in not only what they're reading, but the topics themselves, 
that perhaps there would be some sparked back and forth discussion. So when two students started arguing about the definition of racism, I did what any teacher would naturally do. I pulled the whole group into the hallway so I could record it. They were reluctant at first, but I think I captured the spirit once I got them a little more comfortable with the microphone. One of my favorite moments from the discussion that wasn't captured was when one of the students literally broke out the definition of racism and read it to the group to explain why one of them was right and one of them was a little less right. But unfortunately, that doesn't get captured on this interview despite my efforts to get that student to participate. We were talking about the we were talking about Mouse, the graphic novel, and you were making an argument that it wasn't racism because they were white. Say the Germans. Well, no, I know. You you have to actually talk loud enough the, for the mic to the hear. The Holocaust. You. Yeah, but it's religious racism. It's not straight up racism. Racism. Yeah, it, religious racism. You don't have to look at the word racism like a specific I'm just forgetting you, I'm topic or thing. It's a whole. I see it as what's the word? So how's religious racism different from just regular well, racism? Religious racism is like a group of people discriminating against another group of people because of their religion. Like, is yeah, the, it's the religion. It's not their physical features. It's not because their arms are too long or their feet are too big or their noses are huge. It's what their religion is based off of. How like Christians do not like. But it's still racism. Yeah, it's you're, religious racism. You're not making. You're not discriminating them against their physical features, but what they believe. That's their spiritual beliefs. Racism is racism. The definition states that racism is based off physical. Religion isn't physical. Can you see religion? No, but we have idols that show the religion, but you cannot actually see religion. So, is this better or worse than regular racism? It's uh, like why the differentiation? It's equal. I would say it's equal because in because Hitler killed Jews because of their religion, and then like back then, I think in the sixties. Whites killed the blacks. They're both, depending, I mean, yeah, I mean. Um, so then why make such a big deal about what type of, type of racism it is? I'm just curious. Racism? Like, it's like cake. There's cake, just the broad term for cake, and then there's different types of cake. Racism is just the cake, the broad term. But social racism, religious racism, physical Appearance racism is the other types of cake. So, so what were you saying though about the definition? Because you actually broke out the definition sheet. And I don't remember. I do not. You had some really good things to say. No, I really didn't. Well, what could you want to grab the sheet? Not really. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. CJ, it was incredible. such a great moment for you. No, it wasn't. I'm just trying to capture it. It was amazing. Kindred is one of the most powerful stories I've ever read. Because it's in graphic novel form, it's one of the most powerful stories I've ever seen. Reading this along with my students has been one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had with a book in the classroom, and helping students unpack that and what it all means is something that I could teach an entire class on and be perfectly happy, never running out of things to discuss and talk about. And I feel like my students who are reading it have a lot to say. So I've captured some of that for you. Uh, just some of their experiences with it and kind of helping them unpack everything from gender and gender equality and expectations and gender roles all the way through the very obvious racism that is present throughout the novel. Uh, these are some of their candid answers to some questions and I hope that it makes you want to read the book because it's great work. So here's some of theirs. about your book I'm excited about my book because um, 
it's interesting so far, and I'm finding out a lot of new stuff about it. But yes, it's gonna be really. What's interesting? That I found out that the man I thought the whole time it's a girl. Yeah. And um, she's she's very masculine for a girl. Masculine. Yeah. 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 No, she totally is. So you're reading Kindred. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Do you think that the other characters? kind of expect different things from her like they expect her to be more feminine yeah, yes they, they automatically yeah. ask her why is she wearing male clothes and yeah, yeah pants right they didn't expect uh-huh. that from her yep yep <laughs> so what do you guys like best about your book so far it doesn't shy away from like certain words and certain images like some people don't take that very well but I found it very like real and I liked it because it doesn't you know like sugarcoat it um I like how it's like a comic book and like you get to actually see the pictures yeah and like how they're communicating with each other and the difference of the generations the girls jumping through I like that too and I like how I like how they show the difference between like when she's like now and then she goes back to the other generation, I like that part, and how like she doesn't know yet like how how she's going back, and I don't know. It's really interesting, interesting for me. Do you have any ideas on what's making her go back? It's, I think it's his. I don't know if he's her grandfather or something like that. That when he's he's in danger, makes yeah. her go back. Why would that be a problem if he were her grandfather? Because then she wouldn't be alive. Yeah. She wouldn't. It affects, like, the whole future. Yeah. And it affects her life and how, like, how she grew up and how everything Everything she knows. Yeah. What about her, um, what about the color of her skin? Why would that be a problem if that was her grandfather? Because she jumps in a time where slavery was still permitted. By her her grandfather is white. Yeah. So maybe he marry a black woman. Maybe. Yeah. What else? Like, I mean, that wasn't always like a consensual thing. Like their the free pass. Yeah, the free pass. But but it's like as I, as I was reading, it said that she didn't even know that that there was a possibility of somebody in her family being white. And she she got to experience new things and know new things about her family generation. Yeah. I like how you can sort of relate to the character. I don't know. She talks about how she's watched movies and seen people get beaten, and I think that's what we all see, but we don't realize the real effect or impacts it had on people in that time. Yeah. It really brought me, made me feel like I was actually there with them, and it, it really gave me an understanding of everything that happened at that time. Like, how did it, how did this book work better to give you an understanding than maybe previous attempts? at getting you to conceptualize the horrors of slavery. Normally they would just show you what happened, but this gave us like how everyone felt about it and like how deep it really went and like the feelings and that were included into it. And I liked that a lot. Instead of just reading, well, this happened and then no emotion at all. And so one of the things I think I hear you saying, and this was kind of my thought, was that if they tell us what happened from people's perspectives when it happened, it's hard for us to connect to. Mm-hmm. But when we take someone from our time and have them experience what happened, you get to experience it along with them and that's easier to connect to because they're actually from our time experiencing yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, those were my thoughts, and uh, that's kind of what I was hearing you echo, so I wanted to capture that, because, like, Dana's character is so powerful because she's from our time, and she has our sensibilities and our understanding, and it's so crazy that until I read this book, I didn't really, I didn't even fully understand 
what it would have been like. And I mean, I still don't, but I feel like this gives me a lot closer of a view on slavery, thanks to Dana, because she's from our time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you find most challenging about the book? I think, mm, I think, I didn't find something any, like, too challenging. It, like, reading it was pretty easy. It was a very fast read. Well, it was a very good book. I mean, maybe challenging in the terms of it made you, it maybe challenged you emotionally. Oh, uh, I know at one point when Dana leaves the cabin and one of the slave wranglers or the patrolman comes back for her sister and tries to rape her and then she gets scared for her death and then she returns back home. And then any time like that throughout the story, I kind of was like, I cried a little bit in some parts because I'm emotional. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. One of the challenging parts for me was watching her relationship with her husband because I could relate a lot to him. And I think they made him white on purpose yeah. because that's kind of, you know, uh, like... It's kind of my experience being white is I always want to do something and I always want to say something, but I never know what to say to make it better. Like, I, I mean, I try, but I don't feel like it's ever enough. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was literally his experience being her husband is he always wanted to know what to say, but he never he could never really get it right. And um, that that part was hard for me. Like what did you what did you think about the character of the husband? I think I really liked how much, how much he tried, like how he tried to be there for her and he cared for her so much. And he like feared for how what was happening to her. At first he didn't really believe it until she started kept coming back. Hurt like really hurt more than the last time. So I and I also liked how whenever she disappeared one of the few times that he grabbed onto her and went with him. Yeah. Her. Yeah. No, he was definitely willing to do anything for her. Um, you know, it, but it's just, I don't know, it almost raises the question of, is that enough? Like, can it be enough? So, I don't know. Some people it could be, but I think Dana really needed that, though, because she was going through a hard time, especially, I think it helped, too, when he went with her because it made it a lot easier for her to go around and do things on the ranch as him, like how they had to, both of them, like conform into mm -hmm. the timeline then. She had to pretend she was a slave, he had to be slave driver, master, something like that, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> well, he was using, he was using her privilege, or he was using his privilege. privilege. Yeah. So do you think maybe this could be a metaphor for like larger larger ways of, of of being like have you thought about it that way yet a little bit i thought you thought about it a little bit i was like oh he's kind of taking like how no one's really going to question too much as they would anyone any of the sla slaves or any like one that was colored or anything yeah like that. yeah anyone who yeah exactly anyone who's black it would have been different like if you would have changed his race, that would have completely changed the way the story went. Well, there was like one scene where the main character witnessed a beating of uh, a slave and like the way she described it and the way that it was depicted, it was like kind of scary to look at, but that's the reality of what happened. And sometimes we don't often face that and people don't see the intensity of how bad American Born Chinese is another graphic novel that tackles racism, but in a completely different way, using what looks like children's drawings and jokes that oftentimes slap you in the face. Uh, things are actually a lot deeper and more complex than they appear on the surface. Watching my students try to unpack what's really going on with the way the characters are drawn and perhaps some of the deeper messages in this book have been beyond hilarious. 
and interesting and very few experiences have made me more proud of the work that they're doing. Is it okay to laugh at racism? Is it okay to empathize with a character that you clearly don't see a lot of value in and oftentimes don't even like? Is it okay to be lost in a story and not really understand what's going on or why it all fits together? Uh, American-born Chinese is very complex and oftentimes I look at my students and I can tell they're wondering if it's okay for them to laugh. Is this really what the author intended? Am I supposed to find this funny? And that's kind of the joy. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy yeah. all of the uh, little jokes that you have to look deeper for. Like what? Uh, there's um, Our issue is racism. And instead of, in a math equation, using R's, they put L's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... That was funny. It's good you laughed at it. Do you think that that was the intention of the author? Um, I believe it was put in there, like. It has to be with how many examples yeah. they're putting in. But like the characters, funnily racist. Like, take it. Um, like, oh, it's a good way to explain it. The character's meant to be like insanely racist and like stereotypical, like the way he talks and the way he acts and things like that. It's supposed to be the color of his skin. It's purely yellow. Like it is not even a joke. Why do you think the author did that? I. It's a good question. <laughs> I know he wasn't purposely trying to be racist. Like, there's no way that he would do that because it's it's not that. I don't know. I think it was just a uh, kind of a comedic thing. I'm not really sure. So just for lols, that might be something that your second read you could look for. I don't know, because you're going to have to unpack racism in terms of your book. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about your book. What um, what are you liking most about it? Uh, what I like most about American-born Chinese is that the stories that they give, we can relate it to like what we're living in now and how we can actually uh, get notice to what the problems we have in society today. And I also think that... The stories they tell can relate on a personal level because he writes about stories in uh, his high school experiences and his whole like child experience. And I feel like since I'm like a high school student, I feel like I can get impacted by this. So, like, what issues do you see in that book that are relevant ones that are going on in our high school? Um, it's just the fact of individualism and stereotyping. I feel like that's. A huge thing that a lot of students struggle with and I feel like by just giving notice to that and giving no by just giving notice to that we can do something about it and try to impact the school and the environment around us for the better it is yeah so and I mean a lot of it has to do with culture so do you feel like here at Lanier we do things that reinforce individual culture or do you feel like we do more to try to make everyone be the same? Um, for the school, I feel like we enforce, enforce or try to enforce individual culture, but I do feel like that just it's just normal because of high schools. That's how students behave. I feel like students just conform to those stereotypical cliques and niches and stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, has this book changed your perspective at all about our school? And if so, how? It hasn't really changed my perspective, but it has given me a new way of seeing people and how they interact with one another and how I can in interact better with people. Awesome. Well, very cool. Thank you for your time. I guess just like the jokes. I mean, like not not in a good way, but like I don't know. Like you, you have to figure out the jokes basically, and you see how you don't realize how racist it is until like you think about it. Like someone has to deal with that, and like this is real things happening. I think you just sit on something maybe important there: the fact that you don't realize how racist it is until you think about it. Interesting. Mm -hmm.
Ichiro is also a graphic novel about cultural assimilation and a lot of the same themes as American-born Chinese, but it tackles these in a completely different way. Again, uh, this is a much more serious novel. It deals with a character that grapples with self-loathing and cultural shifts that leave them completely lost and without an identity. It's been great um, the way my students have been able to understand and connect and really feel that sense of loss that gets communicated so eloquently through the rich drawings and art and action sequences. Time is something that's very flexible in the novel, kind of akin to Kindred, and it's hard sometimes for students to understand what time the story is actually in and how that time relates to the rest of the story. It moves seamlessly from myth to the past to modern day, and it transcends cultures in a way that hopefully will allow the main character to gain back that sense of identity that they've lost. So what do you like about your book so far? Um, the fact that it, you know, it's from a culture that I personally enjoy, and it has to do with basically not only about Japanese myths, but it also has some historical events that you know go on around the book. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, I mean, that book is... The book's challenging, right? Because there's so much going on with different times at the same time. Like, what what have you found most challenging about that? Trying to understand, like, you know, what the reason behind all of it is. Like, how, you know, to respond to what the story is trying to tell. And Yeah, yeah. Does the, Do you think that it being a graphic novel affects that at all? Like, how is that different than if you were just to read a normal book? Well, actually, it being a graphic novel makes it easier to read, considering they give you visuals and, like, you know, stuff to see and how to picture it. Yeah, definitely. Do you find that it takes more time or less time? It actually takes less. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, but you're enjoying it? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much would you like this book you're reading? 10 being tops. A 10. Awesome. Cool beans. Like, they switched from, like, a teapot to, like, his mom moving away for a job. Yeah, they, like, switch it up a bunch. Like, there's different stories with the whole thing, and it's just confusing. It's hard to keep track of maybe present time. Bill Koningsberg changed my life. It was the very first time I'd ever read a YA LGBT novel. And this happened in college, and I had no idea I would one day be sponsoring a club like the GSA at Lanier. And it was incredible to read a story with representation beyond what I thought could exist in YA novels about real relationships that happen between people that aren't just straight that aren't just boys and girls falling in love, but a book that actually captures some of those more complex and difficult social interactions that really exist in our high schools and in the world. And when I reached out to him on Facebook after a wee bit of stalking, I was able to, um, well, get up the guts really to ask to see if he would do a Zoom interview with my GSA book club. And he very quickly said he would. So what follows is about a 20-minute interview with him and our book club, which he so graciously gave us the time, and some amazing questions that were written completely by my students. Uh, This was an amazing experience, and I'm so excited to be able to share that with you now. Hello, how are you all doing? Good. Good. I'm sorry if I'm a minute late there. Today has been crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we understand. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy is how we roll. So we roll. Okay, good. Well, see you all. Hello. Well, (laughs) nice to meet you. So so talk to me. Tell me 
have you read, oh, you read Openly Straight. We read it. Okay, so talk to me. And all, I have to first ask, does that mean that any of you want to throw that book at the screen right now at me? A little bit, but okay. <laughs> I enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay, good. The biggest question that has been a debate every single time <laughs> we've met up to talk about it was how do you pronounce it? Is it Rafe or Rafi? It's Rafe. I do it. <laughs> okay, we'll see you later. That was your one question. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, yes, it is Rafe. Okay, that's what I was thinking. So what's the next question? We got a list. Yeah, we have a list. Okay, I'm, I'm on board. Okay, so why would you have Steve just disappear and then come back for like one conversation and then just kind of disappear again? <laughs> That's a good question. So when I started writing the book, uh, Steve was sort of a major character. And frankly, as the book went on, he just disappeared. He just isn't a major character. He's, uh, you know, it's just what happened. I don't know that it's perfect the way that I did it. Uh, but yeah, Steve, I thought Steve was going to play a major role. Uh, and he's just, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, have you ever gone somewhere and you meet somebody and you think they're like a main character in your life and then you realize, oh no, they're not. They're just like a person along the way. So that's sort of how it was with Steve, you know. Are you aware, by the way, that there's a sequel? Yes, yes. we are. Okay, okay, good. Next year. Next year, got it. So what else? Okay. Um, so... I have kind of like a multi-layer question. Like, where did you get Mr. Scarborough's advice from? And like, did someone tell it to you first or did you figure it out on your own? Um, it's really two things. Basically, Mr. Scarborough owes me. <laughs> um, so it was like a, a very meta aspect of writing this book. It was like, I was giving myself advice. Uh, every time um, I was writing as Rafe and then responding, it was like I was responding to myself, which is crazy if you think about it. I mean, crazy is not the right word. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's like I was having a little conversation with myself. Uh, but he, he, that's definitely not something that was told to me. Um, although the E.L. Doctoro uh, comment is something that I got from E.L. Doctoro. I, I was in graduate school and he came to visit my program and he said that to me. So I stole it from him. <laughs> I gave the, uh, I, I said who it was from, so it's okay. But uh, yeah, you know, that was an interesting thing. That Of all of the things in the book, that's the one that gets the most mixed reviews. Some people just love that and, and are so interested in it. And some people think it's a little bit preachy. Which, and I, I can see either side of that. I'm definitely on the side where I enjoy it because I'm very into like analyzing when it comes to writing. So I thought that was very cool. I'll tell you along those lines, Ash, that I, um, when I was, I actually learned those things about me while writing the book. I realized while writing the book that I am a performative writer. I did not know that. And it was, in writing that I found out, oh, I'm, I'm kind of putting on a mask when I write like that. And just like what Rafe does, that's exactly what I do all the time. So that was a really, my feeling about books is that often they sing, they, they really buzz when discovery is happening during the book. And that is absolutely the case about Openly Straight. I learned a ton writing that book. Awesome. Yeah. Uh so I have a question about the character Weiss. I thought it was a very interesting character in the book. Will you like kind of address the big world issues through the character itself? Uh, say the second part of that. I heard it's about Bryce, but what was the question? Like, were you trying to address a big issue about the world through this character itself? Yes. Um, you know, I actually, this book was set, you know, uh, what what's it called? Was it Natick? Uh, 
the school is Natick. Uh, gosh, I can't believe. I, I went, it's, it's been a while. Uh, I went and spoke at a school called Belmont Hill in Massachusetts, which is the basis for Natick. And um, what I saw there was an incredibly uh, homogeneous society. I saw a lot of rich white boys. Uh, and so there's a lot going on there that I am addressing by, by talking. I mean, and one of the themes of the book is about difference and about labels. So I, I was really addressing something there. Was that clear to you? Did you think I was? I really think it did. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. What did you all think? Did, 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 you, did it feel like Bryce um, was fleshed out enough? Did he need more? I think it was overall a good like character storyline. Mm -hmm. Maybe just like a little bit more on like how he's doing like now. Yes, uh, it's interesting. I know you haven't read Honestly Ben yet, but I can tell you a little story behind the story that one of the things I did in the first draft of Honestly Ben is I had Ben and Rafe writing emails to each other because I was also interested in knowing how, how Bryce was doing. I really like Bryce. Um, and in the process of editing, it turned out that's something that disappeared. It wasn't central to the story. So uh, we find out a little bit about where Bryce is right now and he's doing well, but we don't really follow his storyline in the second book. Uh, but I think all of the, those instincts that you're all talking about are right on as far as I'm concerned. What other questions? Okay, so I was wondering, like, where did you get the inspiration to create Claire Olivia and, like, why to create her personality the way it is? So, <laughs> um, I really like Claire Olivia. So, I have noticed in my books, you know, you know, sometimes they say that writers only write one book and they write it over and over again. And I don't know that that's true. I have five novels and they're all certainly different, but there are themes that play again and again. And one of them is this friendship between a boy and a girl. Um, and that comes from my life. Uh, that, that person, that voice uh, was actually, it's <laughs> uh, all of those, those female characters are pretty well based on my friend Rhonda. Uh, who I grew up with, and our relationship. The story about Claire Olivia, um, when Rafe goes to tell Claire Olivia that, I, I, boy, it's been a while since I wrote this book, but doesn't he go to tell her that maybe he's straight or bi now? Did that happen? Or Am I making something up? I know that really, like, they were talking on the phone, and he told her about how, like, he just wasn't like telling anybody that he was straight or not that he wasn't straight at Navit. Right. I, I'm thinking about something where the, the story and I, I, I'm, I'm, it's amazing. I've gotten to this point in my career. I cannot remember what book this is from. It might be an honestly Ben, but there's this moment where Rafe uh, thinks that maybe he's uh, straight now and he goes to tell Claire Olivia and he walks into the room and she sits up in her bed and the sheet comes down and she's naked and he, he uh, sort, of, sort of squeaks like, ee! <laughs> and uh, she says, what's going on? And he says, oh, never mind." <laughs> so it's like in the moment he kind of, okay, yeah, that happened between me and Rhonda. Uh, that's an actual part of my own life from when we were in uh, summer school uh, where I was like, I, I actually, I kissed a girl or a girl kissed me, and I just was like, oh, maybe I'm bi, maybe I'm straight, and I ran in to tell her, that, you know, suddenly I saw her naked and I screamed like a little girl, and yeah, I'm not, not, I'm not bi. <laughs> so, that was not right. Anyway, so yeah, I, I, I really did steal, uh, and I, I tend to write a lot for my own life. Uh, I always tell friends, like, don't, don't say things in front of me if you don't want them to be in a book. 
I won't attribute them to you, but if they're funny, uh, the line in Openly Straight where they're, oh, when Albie and Toby are first introduced and they're talking about being attacked by a, a gang of six-year-olds, yeah. I, I heard that walking in a park. And I was just like, that's the weirdest thing I ever heard that's going in a story. So that's how writers do things. You know, we are, we're scavengers. It also allows us to seem funnier than we are. <laughs> Sorry, the long answer, what else? Um, so I had a question and it's, was it so easy for Rafe to get acceptance from his parents that he was afraid other people wouldn't be nearly as accepting? I think I would put it differently. I would say that that's a sort of privilege. So, so that Rafe was a privileged character. His situation was such that he got that acceptance and maybe he didn't fully understand exactly what other people were dealing with, which is really that's where I started the novel. I had this idea of like, well, what about for kids who don't struggle? I'll tell you a story if you have, do we have time for a quick story? Oh yeah. Okay, so I was really struggling to write this book. I thought it was, when I started to write it, I thought it was a comic romp. It was gonna be called No Place Like Home, uh, and it was gonna be like The Wizard of Oz, but gayer. Like that was the original idea for this book. And there is humor in this book, for sure, but I wasn't quite finding what the book was really about until one day when I was living in Billings, Montana. First of all, don't live in Billings, Montana. That's the first lesson. The second is, um, well, I, was, I used to play racquetball and, and there was a gym where you could go and play pickup racquetball games in Billings. And I would go some days and I was playing racquetball with some basic strangers. I barely knew them. And you see, I have this wedding ring um, this was back in when I was writing the books, so it was like 2010. And I, um, what was it? I was already wearing that ring because I had a civil union to my partner, Chuck, who is now my husband. Uh, and somebody I was playing with saw the ring and he said, Oh, you're married. And I said, yes. And he said, what's your wife's name? And I, I, first of all, I'm openly gay. Second of all, at that time, I was famously openly gay. I had written something at ESPN, so it was like, all you'd have to do is Google me and gay, gay, gay all over the internet. Um, and the, at the same time, I was in Billings and I didn't know this guy's politics or what was gonna happen. And I just was, had all of these floods of thoughts at the same time. And I, well, the big one was, this is really not fair. I just wanna play racquetball. I really don't want to have a political conversation with this stranger. I don't really want to engage, but obviously I'm, I'm an honest person, so I'm not going to lie. And in just a split second, I just said, her name is Rachel. And I kept playing the game. And after I left, when I got in my car, that was the moment that the book Openly Straight was formed. Because I have that same thing that Rafe does. Like, I'm basically, I've always been basically okay with being gay, but I don't think I'd ever recognized what a hassle that is, that coming out isn't like a one-time thing, it's a lifetime thing, and nobody ever told me that. Mm -hmm. So I, at that moment, I thought, oh my God, this is a book. And that's where the book really came from, this, this idea of, you know, boy, wouldn't it be nice if that label wasn't the thing that everybody wanted to talk about all the time? Uh, so anyway, that's a long-winded answer to a short and concise question. Oh, yeah. So I had a question about why Ben is such an emotional character. And I was wondering if it had something to do with how strict his parents were when he was growing up. Lovely question. I think so. Um, and you'll learn a lot more about him when you read Honestly Ben. Uh, he has an interesting upbringing. He also is based on my husband. Uh, so my husband, Chuck is the basis for Ben, although my husband is not a teenager. Uh, but he's like, like Chuck is an older version of, or Ben is an idealized teenage athletic version of my husband, because actually, <laughs> if, you throw, if you throw a ball at my husband, he goes like this. Uh, so he's not really athletic, 
but my husband talks like Ben is. And I would say, I wouldn't say that my husband is emotional in the same way that I wouldn't necessarily say that Ben on the surface is emotional, but it's like still waters run deep, right? It's like underneath that, there's this incredible something. Everybody, by the way, uh, has a crush on Ben. Everybody in the world has a crush on Ben, which hurts my feelings because, right, exactly. I'm, I'm sort of Rafe. Nobody has a crush on Rafe. That really hurts my feelings, and I'm upset about it. Comfortable. What? He's not challenging enough. Like, he's too, he's so comfortable, and he <laughs> feels so okay. Like, Ben is dangerous and mysterious and yeah. deep waters and... Yeah, totally true. That's exactly right. Um, that's that's right. Uh, one other quick uh, Ben story. Uh, it's, a, it's an honestly Ben story, but uh, Chuck doesn't always read my books until they're out anymore. He used to read them all. And we were on the beach somewhere on vacation, and he was reading uh, Honestly Ben. And at one point, he snorted. And I said, what? And he said, oh, Rafe just said something stupid. And then... <laughs> Then he started to laugh, and the next line in the book was, Ben snorted. So I actually have it exactly right. Like, I, I, I'm able to just use my life and translate it into teen world, and generally our conversations are Ben and Rafe conversations. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Um, so, like, um, you kind of answered this with your story earlier, but it was like, why have Rafe go through the whole journey of going back into the closet? Like, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, but I, I think that the reason is that it's what he needs to learn. You know, the two things I think Rafe needs to learn in this book, one is about his privilege that he doesn't understand that like he's a lucky kid. Uh, and his parents, his mother tells him that, but how many times do our parents tell us something and we don't listen? Like that's how it works. So that's not gonna be enough. He has to experience it for himself. So I think that's one of the reasons. And the other thing he has to learn uh, is that thing about the camera, which is related to that. I think that he needs to learn that he has a camera trained on him at all times because he's not quite done uh, dealing with feelings about all of this. Does that make sense to you? Like, I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way that people are like, you're watching yourself and judging yourself about maybe your masculinity or your femininity or your difference. Uh, like to me, that's something we all, especially LGBTQ people have to be aware of uh, because that has to go away. Like that's not a good way to live. So I'm really glad to say it only took me like 48 years to put that away. Only 48 years. Uh, not a great thing to carry around, but it's a very normal thing to carry around. So. Well, we definitely want to get to the one question, the most burning question that they. Uh oh. Yeah. Where did the Segway nuns come from? <laughs> I think that just came from my imagination. Uh, yeah, I think I have been to Boulder, to Pearl Street in Boulder. In fact, I'm going to Colorado tomorrow, uh, and it is weird. It is super, super weird. So I, I think that it fits, but I made it up. You know, uh, my my if if any of you like to write, uh, my one quick advice about writing is um, nouns. Um, focus on really, really interesting nouns. Uh, it's great if you can describe a beautiful sunset, that's gonna really help you. But the way that books get interesting and the way that people are interested in what we write is to write about interesting stuff. So I am never going to put something that doesn't interest me as an example in the book. I want nuns on segues. I want things I haven't seen before. So that's a lot of what I do, is just make stuff up. Well, that's awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, did I tell you it's like $800 per minute uh, for these sessions? So I'll send you a bill. No problem. <laughs> no, we got you covered. Got me covered. Hey, it's so nice to meet you all. So we'll maybe try to hit you up next year. Talk. And uh, I will do that.
uh, and catch me before I'm like a best-selling author. And then I'm like, I don't know who you people are, that kind of thing. Cause I don't have, <laughs> I have a feeling that probably the latter part of that won't happen. Even I'm sure the first part will. Thank you. I would like yeah, <laughs> All right, everyone. So nice to meet you all. Bye. It's my planning period. I'm supposed to be grading papers. I'm supposed to be lesson planning. I'm supposed to be answering emails and doing all those things that teachers have so little time to actually do. And what am I doing? I'm sitting in my classroom alone, having a conversation with what appears to be by myself, but we know that I'm actually talking to all of you. But that goes back to what I was talking about in the introduction. This kind of feels like cheating, kind of feels like something I'm sneaking or getting away with or something I'm not supposed to be doing, even though this is very real work that I'm doing alongside with my students. But it's hard for me to reconcile these thoughts too, just as much as it is for the rest of society. So that's kind of where I'd like to start this discussion about the podcast. One of the mistakes that I made this week, I assigned students to find an article that they would bring into class about their social justice topic. I didn't spend enough time actually giving them the tools to find articles. Those are things that just kind of seem like common sense to me uh, because I grew up in a time where you actually had to go to sources to find things. And now everyone thinks you can just find things on Google which you can to a point, but you can find all the things or you can find the things that people paid for you to find, but you can very rarely find exactly what you're looking for unless you start with a source. So one of the things that I'll change going forward is giving them a little more direction. Hey, check out Buzzfeed. They actually have a news source. Check out CNN, check out Fox, check out your favorite magazine or check out your favorite newspaper, check out your favorite uh just source of information. Where do you get your news from? And even that question is ridiculous to so many students who literally avoid the news like it's the plague. It's a bunch of boring stuff that doesn't involve them anyway. At least that's the way a lot of folks feel. Or it's so depressing. Why would you want to look at that? I can kind of relate. So teaching them how to actually find articles will be a really great place to start. Hopefully enough of them can figure it out on their own. <laughs> Another thing that I'm going to need to figure out how to do is actually give them scripts. So this week I had students play around with a minute to three minute podcast about either a story they told or even just some uh, conversation about a social justice topic. But I didn't have them write a script. I just kind of expected them to be able to have a conversation and record it. And that sounds simple, but it's not. So giving them some kind of script to work with or enough time to plan would have been something that I would do over. Uh, that's something I can look forward to for next week when they start doing interviews as their focus and we move away from storytelling. The last thing, time. There's no time. There's literally five weeks left in the year and I want them to make two fully completed 15 to 30 minute podcasts. I'm freaking out just a little bit because I have all that other normal English language art stuff like vocabulary, finals to prepare for, uh, a, you know, a quiz to give or a test here, just all this stuff that I always have to get bogged down with that is important, but how to make it all work together. So that's kind of where I'm at. I just wanted to share with you guys what's going on with the podcast itself and uh, we'll see where it goes. This week's podcasting work was centered all around storytelling. I used three very powerful and controversial master podcasts to examine some very different topics and the elements that were used to tell those stories with the students. So the first podcast we listened to was about the Civil War and freedom, but from a perspective 
that freedom was something that had to be earned despite the war ending. The next podcast was about the black lung. And while it began with some very heavy ASMR breathing that students laughed at pretty relentlessly, most of them stopped laughing when they realized they were listening to a recording of an actually dying man and his discussion about how culture and status had affected his perspective on the world that he would soon be leaving. The last podcast we listened to was about domestic violence and abuse. And one of the students that I taught said something really woke to the effect that the repetition in the podcast about how domestic abuse isn't always something that leaves bruises, it led her to believe that no one would actually end up getting hurt. Or as it happens in the podcast, several people died. So these podcasts left a really lasting impression, I hope, on my students, and I captured some of their thinking here in these segments. So what was really powerful about those podcasts? Um, I think it was kind of, it was the way that they told them and the, the things that they used, especially the last one with all the, the audio uh, clips and stuff and kind of how you said that like we got attached to those people and then they told the story out of order and uh, when we found out that like those people that we were listening to were dead it was a lot more powerful than if they just would have said that from the beginning. So, Do you think that that's a trick you're going to be able to use in your own podcasting? Um, I'm going to try to yeah kind of tell it out of order to keep the audience like actually interested in the story. So with the, with the podcast that we listened to today, what would you say is the most powerful element that you heard being used? The most powerful element to me was imagery because it allowed me to really see what was going on in that certain situation and allowed me to feel some type of way about what they were describing. Yeah, so like, what were some of the tricks that the authors used to create that imagery? Um... Don't worry, I'll take out your ums and your pauses. They use descriptive words or symbols like the church fan and how she wrote her name on the back. So it allowed you to see a little bit more than just the just the thing, but maybe like the whole concept? Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Are you going to be able to try to use symbols in your podcast? Uh, yeah, I think so. Awesome. The fact that like, she was like telling on about how her and her sister both went through domestic violence, but like neither one, well, not until the very, very end, one of the sisters was like, what you're going through is not right. Or like she said that the way he's treating you is just not right. And then that was the last that she's ever talked to her sister. Like, does that something you can relate to at all? Uh, on a personal level, not really. <laughs> but what did, what made you connect to that story the most? Well, because I've seen a lot of pretty messed up things. Well, not, like, personally, but, like, on shows and, like, the news and all that stuff and how, like, it's really unfair what people go through and you just realize that you have it really good. So this about wraps up this week's podcast. If you're still listening, I commend you. I realize this one's been a long one. I don't know what's acceptable. I don't know if an hour is no problem or if I should keep them to 30 minutes. But compared to previous episodes, this one's been really long. Should I save the interview for a future episode? Should I have not included so many student examples? Uh, I don't know. Give me some feedback. Tell me what you guys think worked with this or maybe what I could do differently on future episodes. Maybe I'll put out a poll. What do you like better? Uh, But regardless, it is what it is, and it's time to say goodbye. And I leave you with a band that I recently rediscovered. Uh, It's Arcade Fire. They've been around for nearly 20 years. They're out of the great land of Canada in the frozen north. They're a brother and sister team, and the song is thematically attached to this podcast episode. It's called Children Wake Up, 
And I feel like there's the message that's communicated in this song is very much what I try to do in my classroom, what I hope I can allow my students to do. And a big part of that is just finding out who they want to be. It talks about the fact that even though our bodies get bigger, something inside of us dies as we become an adult. And I don't think it has to. I think that that's something that we can keep alive as long as we continue to wake up to ourselves and who we are.